Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. If you're a fan of Spectacles, you may have seen an Applebaum's cover story in The Atlantic. If you haven't, it's worth a read, though it is a long one. And we've got some thoughts on it. You know that we believe democracy is in trouble around the world. Most established democracies are no longer as democratic as they used to be, and new democracies aren't emerging as often as they used to. We're experiencing what might be called a global democratic recession. Scholars and activists generally agree that this is happening, but the causes are up for debate. Some observers believe the global democratic decline is caused by economic inequality, others immigration or racial tensions. Still others offer geopolitical explanations, or explanations that suggest international political dynamics are a, if not the, driving force in democratic erosion around the world. Today, we're going to be evaluating two of those geopolitical explanations. A column in The Atlantic magazine by the historian and journalist Anne Applebaum, and an article in the New York Times by the journalist Max Fisher. Both articles come at the question of whether or not global democratic decline has geopolitical causes from different angles, and both make important points, although neither of us agree with either piece in full. Regardless, taking a close look could help teach us some important things. So the first article by Ann Applebaum in The Atlantic Magazine, as you said, Philip, is called The Bad Guys Are Winning. It's a cover story in The Atlantic. I mean, it's generated some debate. And so I think it's worth covering. In case our listeners don't know, Ann Applebaum has written books. She's covered sort of this story, particularly focusing on Central or Eastern Europe. She wrote a book called The Twilight of Democracy about her own experiences um, in Poland, where she was married for a time to the Polish defense minister of the Law and Justice Party in Poland, the center-right party that has become sort of populist nationalist right in recent years. So she's seen some of this stuff stuff up close, and so it's worth listening to what she has to say. Her broad thesis is that autocrats are coordinating, if loosely, and sharing practices to the detriment of democratic movements and democracies around the world. And just to give our listeners a sense of the tone of the piece, um, I'm going to start with her opening quote, which reads... The future of democracy may well be decided in a drab office building on the outskirts of Vilnius. And she goes on to discuss the Belarusian dissident, I'm going to butcher this name here, I'm sorry, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, who ran for president of Belarus last year um, against Alexander Lukashenko, who is the current president of Belarus, and he is an authoritarian leader who cracked down, said that he won the election, although it's disputed, and she had to flee to Vilnius, which is in Lithuania. But 
The article starts out by saying the future of democracy may well be decided in this drab office building. And it's dramatic, maybe even existential. We're setting the tone in a really dramatic way here that, you know, as the piece sort of bears out, I think maybe might overstate the exact sort of nature of of the problem so yeah yeah and let's let i mean let's talk about that sort of belarusian example if, if yeah you so applebaum has a number of key examples that she refers to of autocratic regimes that are working together i think we're just going to work through her through three of her examples which are belarus venezuela and turkey mostly because these can be run through pretty quickly and that it's enough of a point made in those three we don't need to go through all of them so in belarus you have a dictator lukashenko who was challenged in recent elections and you know it wasn't looking good for him in terms of the level of opposition he was seeing from civil society and the public and ann applebaum tells this story about how this plane arrived from moscow And within days, Lukashenko started arresting select civil society leaders because Applebaum says this is a technique that was presumably shared by a Russian diplomat or Putin lackey with Lukashenko because this is something that Putin has done. Arrest the leading civil society members, don't arrest everyone, and you can intimidate most people off the streets and into complacence. And it sort of snowballs from there. And Applebaum presents this snowballing story in which Lukashenko has gotten more and more brutal and acted with more and more impunity in his behavior. And we do know that he's been working with Vladimir Putin fairly closely over the course yeah, no of doubt. these months. And it's it is it, it, there's a very strong case to be made that he's almost become a client or a puppet of Vladimir Putin at this point, and that Vladimir Putin is really propping up yeah. the Belarusian regime. Yeah. And that's the important thing in Applebaum's story is, yes, there's this greater impunity, but there's this greater impunity because Lukashenko now has a friend in Putin who's sort of supporting him. And Even though they supposedly don't like each other personally. They don't like each other personally, but they both sort of see it in their shared interest shared interest to keep each other's regimes dictatorial regimes afloat so that's one of the examples that applebaum goes through another one venezuela yeah so just a quick briefing on venezuela is considered to be a socialist country the current president is nicolas maduro who inherited the position from hugo chavez who's sort of a populist left-wing leader for for a while and and you might remember from a parks and recreation episode yeah, yeah, yeah. You might remember from a Parks and Rec episode. But Maduro inherited his position and has sort of engaged in a crackdown on society even more authoritarian than Chavez is, has really sort of increasingly set himself as opposed to the United States, but has remained in power despite attempts by the opposition to try and dislodge him and has mismanaged the economy as well as experienced sanctions and the economy has basically plummeted. People are hungry. The opposition has tried to capitalize on that unsuccessfully. Including an alum of our college. Yeah, Leopoldo Leopoldo Lopez. Lopez. Right. But Maduro is still in power. And shout out Leopoldo Lopez. If you want to come on the pod, let us know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But Maduro, according to Applebaum, Maduro has received aid from a variety of countries from Turkey and from Russia and China, which have provided loans and oil investments. 
which has helped to prop up the regime. So I think that that is, a, a, you know, again, a significant example of autocracies working together to sort of establish or to maintain rule. And, you know, obviously, right, that's a, you know, we talk about right wing populism a lot, but Maduro is ostensibly left wing, but he also has. Um, Once you get authoritarianism, there's really no meaningful difference <laughs> yeah. in where you stand on the political spectrum. Right. Political right. spectrums are important in a democracy where there's competition in politics. But um, that's another point beside, besides the fact. But the other example in Turkey Applebaum tells this story about Uyghurs living in Turkey and Turkish policy about the Uyghurs. If if you have missed it, we haven't written anything about it, so you know you wouldn't have heard it from us. But if you've missed it, there's been an ongoing process of ethnic cleansing in the Xinjiang province of China. It's a far western province uh, in sort of the steppe region. It's populated largely historically by. Turkic Muslim steppe people, very similar ethnically to the people that populate the nation of Turkey. And increasingly, as of late, the Chinese government has undertaken a policy of ethnic cleansing and sort of, quote unquote, re-education of this ethnic and religious minority and a organized program of immigration of Han Chinese ethnic group members to the region as well it's it's a really bad situation we don't need to get into the details here but it's a very bad situation despite what the uh, fake accounts that you might encounter on twitter might try to tell you (laughs) and not that long ago erdogan like i said there's some you know erdogan is the president of turkey president of turkey as i said there's some ethnic and there's some religion religious similarities between the uyghurs and the population of turkey erdogan took a stand and said what's happening in the xinjiang province of china is a genocide you know he was calling it out for what it is just a few years later however erdogan can be seen walking those statements back right as he consolidated his authority from simply uh democratically elected to a more authoritarian presidency yeah yeah and so applebaum says this is because erdogan as he became more of a dictator and consolidated his authority, looked to a fellow autocracy like China for help, cooperation, investment, technology, things like this. And as a result, really had to walk back these positions on on the Uyghur people of Xinjiang. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting, and we'll get into this further down the line a little bit, but uh, Turkey is a U.S. ally. It's part of NATO. And so, but, so that's, that's, that's another relevant factor here. But it is true, right, that he has gotten some investments from China. I'm sure there's Belt and Road Initiative investments in Turkey. So he maybe has some incentive, and maybe the, right. the Chinese government is willing to sort of back him up in terms of his consolidation of power. Right. Yeah. And so... Again, the overarching theme repeated in all of these examples that we named is that in them we see autocracies collaborating with autocracies to keep each other afloat. Yeah, and then there's a quote, if you want to read it, Philip, that is, I think, sort of really encapsulates Applebaum's sort of main argument, her main thesis here. Yeah, she says, unlike military or political alliances from other times and places, The members of this group don't operate like a block, but rather like an agglomeration of companies. Call it Autocracy Inc. Their links are cemented not by ideals, but deals, 
deals designed to take the edge off Western economic boycotts or to make them personally rich, which is why they can operate across geographical and historical lines. Right. And part of that is, as, right, as, as, we've, as we've noted, writers at as Applebaum sort of argues that their deals designed to take the edge off of Western economic boycotts, meaning like sanctions, which both Belarus and Venezuela have faced. It helps to avoid some international repercussions, right? I mean, in, in a, our last uh, bird's eye series on democratic backsliding, we talked about how aspiring autocrats or authoritarians will sort of use more subtle tactics. They'll still hold elections. They'll just manipulate the results or give the executive more power. That's one way of avoiding international repercussions because those things can be construed as strictly legal. But this is something else, right? It's a way of avoiding international repercussions because you have a sort of not necessarily, as Applebaum suggests, a really tight block, but a loose block of kleptocrats who are sort of watching out for each other, meaning that they you can act without fear of consequences, right? Because right. you've got these fallback regimes who you can rely on to back you up and to provide you markets for your goods, supply of things like technology that you'll need investments and infrastructure and construction that you'll need blah 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 the list goes on no longer do you have to fear as much western sanctions and consequences this is something i highlighted in my article about the coup in sudan if you want to read it i there's a rising number of coups happening in the world that does coincide with greater availability of right opportunity economic and otherwise beyond the United States and its and Western Europe, let's say. And I think that this is a point of agreement that we have with Applebaum's diagnosis. And besides the article on Sudan, you can see this in our podcast on Salazar, the dictator of Portugal, and uh, my focus from a couple weeks ago on China and how its admission to the World Trade Organization by the United States globalization in general has in some ways facilitated or assisted the longevity of autocracy right by allowing international cooperation between these kinds of regimes you see in some ways how globalization can allow them to live longer in right a way. they can in a way outsource stability to other regimes. Right, right. Someone like Lukashenko, who's seeing major instability at home, can go to Russia, which has a much more developed and solid autocracy, and say, I need your help. I need these things. I need you to give me a market for these products so I can get some money in my treasury and do this stuff. Right. You can outsource that stability necessary in, in Venezuela with Maduro. You see a state that is just absolutely plummeting and... He can outsource stability to places like China, get some funding, get some money in the reserve to spend on these crackdown efforts to keep everything sort of right. stable. Yeah. And I think that's really important. But that's we do disagree with some things also. Yeah. I mean, the first one that I wanted to bring up is Applebaum discusses a couple of other Example, she notes that, I think she uses these three countries, she notes that Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt can all sort of turn to China, and they also have played some role in repressing Uyghur populations in their own states or deporting them to China. And so... 
the problem there is that Saudi Arabia is an ally of the United States, right? We've, as I've written before in insights for, for our spectacles, and I think as we've probably discussed, the United States has supported Saudi Arabia's war effort in Yemen, where it has basically committed war crimes through its air campaign multiple times, killing many civilians. And the UAE has also participated in that. And Egypt is a major human rights violator on its own terms, but it's also pretty closely aligned with the United States. And so complicating this narrative is the fact that there are a lot of autocracies around the world, autocratic countries that are aren't bolstered by other autocracies. Well, like I think they are bolstered by China, but their club, but also right. the United States, but also by the United States. And that yeah. is like a pretty that's a pretty big elephant in the room that Applebaum doesn't make a lot of, of, of effort to sort of confront. She towards the end of her piece, she makes some note about how Donald Trump felt more comfortable with the Saudi royal family. But this has been I mean, the United States and Saudi Arabia have been allies since oil was discovered in Saudi Arabia, since Saudi Arabia was a state. It's, it's been an ally of the United States. It's not a Donald thing. And this also has downstream effects. For example, we've spent a lot of time talking about the degradation of democracy in Tunisia. And the Tunisian president, Kaya Syed, who seized all this power in, in the past couple of months, actually has gotten a lot of support from Saudi Arabia, from the United Arab Emirates, and from Egypt, right? So there are these downstream effects when you're talking about any kind of a conflict between democracy and authoritarianism around the world, the fact of the matter is that the United States has supported, and I should note that the United States has sort of played a little bit of a tougher game with Egypt and a ever so slightly tougher game with Saudi Arabia, although they've certainly, they've sort of, they said they were going to stop this war in Yemen and now it's still going on and they've sort of rehabilitated Mohammed bin Salman after he killed Jamal Khashoggi. So anyway, not, not to get away but from the point. But he let women drive, Harry. But he did, he did, he let, he let women drive. He's not, a woke prince, bro. Yeah. So not to get away from Jesus, Philip. Not to get away from the from the point, if you look at sort of the way the lay of the land in geopolitics today, it's not so clear that this is just the terrain of a you know select group of, of autocratic nations. Right? Yeah, and I think also it's not just, you know, we can say right now that's a problem, but you can also take a look at the history of US foreign policy and you can see how we have historically contributed to this situation and the rise of autocracies in certain areas. I mean, South America and the Middle East are both replete with examples of the United States going in. I know, Harry, you had something about this in particular. Yeah, well, I was going to say, if you look at, for example, I mean, you can sort of trace a direct line. There was a democratically elected leader in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, in 1953. The CIA did a coup, replaced him with the Shah, who was a brutal, autocratic, repressive dictator. And he was overthrown um, by an anger for his policies, which were supported by the United States, by the Islamic Revolution, which established the basically sort of theocratic state that exists in Iran today, right? So you can sort of trace a line between both the dictators we've supported in some cases, yeah. and then also the times when we sort of tried to overthrow people, the sort of... Con the Con the historical consequences have been that they're replaced by not so democratic leaders themselves, which is yeah. suggests that the structure of world order today is, you know, the United States as the superpower has structured world order in a certain way in which there are autocracies that we've had a heavy hand in, in creating either indirectly or directly. And I think that that points to, as a whole, the criticism of Applebaum's piece was that would be that, yes, it's an important trend cooperation between these autocracies right the impact of globalization on autocracies durability is not to be understated we've written about it we totally agree but that 
this isn't something that can be so easily explained with some story about how autocracy is fighting against democracy and they're all working together and they're winning. It's not that simple. And if we actually treated geopolitics in this way, if say tomorrow morning, Joe Biden wakes up and says, from now on, foreign policy is going to be about a struggle between democracy and autocracy. And he actually followed through on that. What that would look like would be the U.S. severing ties with or invading all kinds of countries who right. are our allies right now. Just a complete upset of the way that modern geopolitics is structured. So, yes, it maybe can be sort of comforting to look at geopolitics in that way, but ultimately it's misleading and not very in touch with the reality of things. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and then and sort of that inter, that international dimension of it as well. But I think there's this notion as well that comes through in your piece in the second half of her piece that autocrats are playing a, a large role in undermining established democracies like the United States too, right? And the big example, obviously, is Russia and R- Russian interference in the U.S. election in, in 2016. She also mentions China with its sort of propaganda, international propaganda arm United Front, but in particular, right, you know, there's this idea like in 2016, I'm just quoting from her here. She says in 2016, Russia's long-term investment in the Trump business empire paid off. In the Trump family, the Kremlin had something better than spies, cynical, nihilistic, indebted, long-term allies. And look, this is me now. It is true that Vladimir Putin undertook a social media influence campaign which was designed to help Donald Trump win the 2016 presidential election. I'm not disputing that. We know that that's true. It may also be true the evidence is more circumstantial that the Trump campaign knew this and willingly accepted it, and maybe even at the lower levels of the campaign worked with the Russian government. But the reality is that, and it's I think it's very comforting for American liberals to think that it couldn't have happened in this country, that there couldn't have been a Trump without some kind of external interference but the truth is that trump is a homegrown phenomenon first and foremost right and that whatever you i mean whatever happened is maybe significant but i and and perhaps you can make a case that because the election was so close if it hadn't happened it wouldn't it would have gone a slightly different way but that's not the important thing the important thing is that the trump movement which has been so corrosive to democracy in the united states at least as far as i see it is something that happened because of dynamics at home, because of immigration, because of globalization. These were not things that were manufactured by Vladimir Putin. And and actually, I think, Philip, you had a really good point on this that I, that I think you should... Yeah, I think, I think you're totally right, Harry. And I think this points in an important direction that, look, Russian involvement in social media misinformation or campaign interference or anything like that, and China's similar practices of social media misinformation and perhaps even worse their establishment of government funded organizations at american universities and american university professors who seek to spread misinformation about the chinese state right i mean this is far-reaching stuff all that is bad it is a problem and we need to deal with it but those aren't really root issues First and foremost, 
autocrats like Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin are merely taking advantage of struggles that we have at home because of ourselves. Struggles that we have yet to get a handle on. Among those are, one, you can say how we deal with social media, political campaigns, you know, spread of misinformation. These are all problems that right. we're going to have either way, whether Xi Jinping and Putin get involved or not. Right. And also that some of the issues that their misinformation or their social media propaganda efforts try to highlight are things like problems of race relations here in America. And I mean, they exploit it to say that it's an indictment of democracy. I think that's absurd, not to mention China somehow is <laughs> has their own problems with being racist against black people. But that's a whole nother issue. The point is that there, these problems are at home and we need to deal with them, whether it's the internet, whether it's misinformation, whether it's race relations, social economic inequality. These regimes are just exploiting the problems that we have and that we need to solve. And if we get caught focusing on the shadow of Putin and Jinping without addressing the problems casting that shadow here at home, right? then what the hell's the point? Honestly. Right. So I think if we were going to sort of summarize our response to the Applebaum article in whole, so there's two theses. One, that autocrats are working together to prop each other up. And two, that autocrats are working together to undermine democracy in other places. I think we would say that the piece correctly recognizes some serious struggles that we're facing, but in a way enabled by a sort of nostalgia extrapolates from some of these observations a grand narrative that simply isn't accurate and has little of the historical basis on which it seems to rely. At the end of the article, Applebaum seems to call for a return to the American foreign policy of the past in which we cared about human rights, in which we cared about democracy promotion. That seems to be nostalgic, and it seems to be that, yes, there are these correct observations, but this nostalgia has allowed Applebaum to construct this grand narrative about competition between democracy and autocracy, and it's not very accurate. And at best, it was barely accurate in the period of the Cold War. Right. We betrayed our ideals a lot in that process. Once or twice. That's Applebaum's article. The second article is by Max Fisher for a column in the New York Times called The Interpreter that he and one other person write for. It's titled, U.S. Allies Drive Much of World's Democratic Decline, Data Shows. The thesis of Fisher's article is that domestic failures of American democracy have eroded democracy in other countries. The argument is sort of in response to Ann Applebaum's piece. Fisher is saying that, no, it's not autocrats undermining democracy. In fact, foreign citizens all around the world, and particularly in the countries we are allied with, Look to the United States for an example. And lately, we've set a very bad example because of domestic failures, and people have seen that, and they're losing faith in democracy. Yeah, and he puts together some evidence. I guess the interpreter column sort of seeks to look at numbers or stuff like that and, and, and interpret them. He looks at a, at a Pew survey that says 17% of people in a group of allied countries say that America is a good model of, of democracy. It's only 17%, he says. 
And the other piece of evidence he marshals is that 36% of all backsliding, according to the democracy metric called VDEM, which is an academic way of measuring democracy numerically. So 36% of all backsliding happened in the 41 countries which either have explicit or implicit military alliances with the United States. Um, And many of those countries, although not all, would be considered developed democracies. Although he doesn't actually provide a list of the 41 countries, and I couldn't find one, but the claim in the the article is that it's 41 countries, most of which are democracies. So I think what he says, which can sort of be read against what Applebaum says, is that domestic issues are more important, that this stuff is, is in fact homegrown, and that the U.S. is obviously not a perfect example. But I'm not sure how much we can extrapolate that to say that it's influencing democratic decline in our lives. I mean, I think Based on our criticism of apple bombs, it does seem like Fisher's on the right track there, prioritizing domestic problems rather than some sort of international machinations. But the trouble is the evidence is really flimsy, and so is the argument. The Pew survey that he cites that 17% think America's a good model of democracy, that same survey says that 56% of respondents on average said that the U.S. used to be a good model. So, you know, it could very well be that a majority of respondents on average in all these countries that were surveyed think that the U.S. used to be a healthy example of democracy isn't any longer. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're losing faith in democracy. It just right. means that they might be critical of the political direction of the United States. So it's a, yes. it's a big jump to make from that survey to, Definitely. okay, these countries don't care as much about democracy anymore because we aren't setting a good example. And what's more, historical surveys from Pew on similar questions about what your, do you have a positive or negative impression of America suggest a clear Trump effect on European opinions, at least. You can see prior to Trump during the presidency of Obama, very high positive impressions. With the election and the presidency of Trump, you see a big dive in the in European impressions of the United States. And with Biden's election, you see it go jump right back up. And that's actually pretty significant because another sort of thread running through the piece is that these problems predate Trump, right? That these issues that with democracy, that the U.S.'s supposed influence on the democratic backsliding and other developed democracies, which are its allies, predates Trump. But if you look at the Pew's, Pew data that is cited, and it may be true that, that, that democratic erosion in developed democracies predates t- Trump. In fact, I know for a fact that it does. But if you look at the Pew data that's cited, it suggests that it's very conditional on the politician in office. For example, bad when George Bush was in office, good when Obama was in office, bad when Trump was in office, and it's back up now that Biden is in office, which basically suggests, as you said, Philip, that Europeans are more progressive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's there's it's a very tenuous connection to make that because they have a negative opinion of some American administrations that they care less about democracy in their own country. Right. Another issue is that the 36 percent stat that Fisher cites, 36 percent of all backsliding happening in 41 countries aligned with the United States. Uh, this statistic is not really substantiated or explained in much detail 
it seems to be a big linchpin of the entire article and it gets not a lot of airtime in explaining what it means or where it comes from. And Fisher links to VDEM's database that you can search, but one doesn't link to the data set used by Fisher. Right. And two doesn't provide the necessary information to a reader to replicate the data set that Fisher is apparently referencing. Which is just bad journalism. It's yeah. I mean Sorry. ultimately it, it is. <laughs> if it's, you're it's listening, just, Max Fisher. It is friend of the pod. We I th- apologize. And I think that this sort of points to our broad sort of response to Fisher's article would be that by focusing more on domestic politics and less on grand international narratives from the outset he's looking in the right direction but the article still falls into this trap of a grand narrative right that somehow bad things happening in the u.s are sending shockwaves throughout the world and destroying democracy everywhere it's and with the way that the data is referenced and not really substantiated explained or cited very well Mm -hmm. It seems that the article is really a headline in search of a story. Yeah. And, you know, that's just not super helpful to readers who are really trying to understand the challenges to democracy. Right. Seriously. Right. And then we didn't mention it at the outset, but we have one last article that we want to discuss. It's very, the article's short. Our discussion of it is short by Damon Linker, who is a columnist at The Week. It's a columnist at The Week. Which is a magazine. Smart guy. He wrote a response, another response to Ann Applebaum's piece titled, The Outdated Thinking Confusing Our Talk About Autocracy. The basic thesis of his article is that Ann Applebaum's worldview was well-suited to the Cold War when the United States and democracy was up against really a unified ideology of communism. But today we'd be better served by cutting deals with some of these autocrats and dividing them. Essentially, if Applebaum is right, that these guys are working together, they prop each other up, they rely on each other, instead of sort of trying to hermetically seal off the democratic world from the non-democratic world, which Applebaum seems to recommend, Linker says, get in there. You know, make some deals with some of them. Divide them if you can. Wed... Put some wedges in between those alliances. Drive them apart. Right. That's going to be way more productive than trying to just, these are our guys and those are your guys and we're on different sides of this line in the sand now. Yeah. And that's the way things are. Right. I mean, I think that he gets it. I think he hits the nail on the head, at least as in terms of how we talk about you know, pure interests, right? If you just force all of these autocracies closer and closer together, they will continue to support each other. And that can make it more difficult if you care about dis- democracy, if you ever want to dislodge them. It's not, it's not so easy. Yeah. And that sort of, you know, I think brings us to our to our conclusion, our final takeaways. I think I, I, I strongly agree with that point that Linker is making. I also think that this, and I, and I wrote a focus on this a while back, which I guess we can link in the show notes, that I think this narrative of an existential struggle that Applebaum is sort of putting forward is is dangerous and that we, we 
really shouldn't harden battle lines in ways that drive autocratic regimes closer together. I think that, you know, really the fundamental fact is, and I think, again, now I'm sort of taking him at both the New York Times piece and the, the Applebaum piece, is that we have to disentangle these domestic and international aspects of what's going on. I mean, it is true, there is an international dimension. There's a strong case to be made, right? I mean, the United States is the world's most prominent, or has been for a long time, the world's most prominent democracy. It probably does have some spillover effects in terms of how other regimes behave, although I think the case in the New York Times piece is way overstated. Yeah. And there is alliance, there is not alliances, or maybe not alliances, but, you know, cooperation between autocrats. And those are things that we can take seriously. But fundamentally, the problems that existing established developed democracies that are, are in in Europe, in the United States, in, in East Asia are facing are fundamentally domestic. I really think that. And I think that it, they have to be considered as being domestic with some key international implications. But that disentanglement, I think, has to happen if we're going to confront these issues in, the, in a really serious way. Yeah, I think that I also largely agree with what you're saying, and I largely agree with what Damon Linker says. This recommendation of a sort of strategic pluralism, we can call it, tolerating different kinds of regimes strategically in order to undermine them in the long term. I guess the only thing that I would qualify that with is that, one, it is so, so important that we keep our eye on the ball or our eye on the objective of strategic pluralism because it can be very easy to get into a policy of working with or tolerating certain autocratic regimes now in order to drive autocratic regimes apart and help build democracy. And over time, that just becomes an autocratic regime you're allied with. Right. You know, and you're not really doing anything for democracy. It's a really, really difficult policy path to go down and to have it be productive. But it does seem to be the one that actually offers some possibility of results. Right. So it's just, you know, it's a tricky path to go down. So it's one you have to be constantly cognizant of those risks that you undertake by getting closer with those regimes. Right. And... The other one I would say is that Applebaum, in the end of her Atlantic article, seems to seems to take a strong position against what she calls sort of leftist or people on the left critical of American history of failures to support democracy or failures to be really a healthy democracy at home, saying that this isn't productive because all it does is it undermines our ability to do better things now in the in the here and now. On the one hand, I understand that and I sympathize with it. On the other hand, if you can't spend time understanding what the U.S. did wrong in the past and the ways in which the U.S. just tremendously failed in a mission to support democracy, instead bending to lots of different corporate interests, like in Iran, where oil companies... You know, the reason we toppled that regime was because that democratically elected government was going to nationalize the oil industry or the the oil fields of the country. And American and British oil companies couldn't have that. So, you know, if we can't sit there and be serious about the ways we failed, then we can't fix those problems for the future. Right. And so if you're serious about democracy promotion, you've got to be serious about learning from our history. Right. Yeah. And 
I think that's a really important point. And just to sort of put a put a put a final point on it, right? I would say, you know, we live in a contingent and messy world. All kinds of different factors contribute to different things. And as appealing as grand narratives might be, I think they risk overstating, right, the influence of certain trends or drawing connections that aren't necessarily there. I think a great quote that sums up some important things, because over at Spectacles, we offer theories and narratives about how to explain what's going on in the world and how we can counteract it all the time, because that's important. Sometimes we need those theories to understand really complex ideas. And there's a great quote from the statistician George Box. He's talking about models, but slightly changed to theories. He says, all theories are wrong, but some are useful. It's just a matter of sorting between what's useful and what isn't. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.